0: The future of education isn't fixed. It's made, one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of EDU Futures, where I bring on today guest Robert Pondicio, Senior Fellow and Vice President for External Affairs at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Robert also teaches civics at Democracy Prep Public Schools, a network of high-performing charter schools based in Harlem, New York. Robert writes and speaks extensively on a variety of issues in education, with a special specialization in literacy, curriculum, teaching, and urban education. Our conversation today will be focused primarily on his 2019 book, How the Other Half Learns, based on a year of observations at New York City's Success Academy Network of Public Schools. By the way, Robert has a fascinating background. After 20 years in journalism, including senior positions at Time and Business Week, Robert became a fifth grade teacher at a struggling South Bronx public school in 2002. He subsequently served as vice president for the Core Knowledge Foundation Robert's articles and op-ed columns on education have appeared in a variety of places. Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New York Daily News, Education Next, and many other places as well. He's a frequent speaker and expert guest on education issues, has appeared on Fox, CNN, and elsewhere. One of the things I appreciate about Robert, one of the reasons I brought him on the show, was because... This book is quite distinct from a lot of the books that you see in education today. He devotes his time and energy to one school, a really deep dive investigation of a single school. We sometimes miss that in our writing about education. We have schools that are referenced as quick examples and illustrations. Maybe there's a whole chapter, but what about a whole book? that takes us deep into one school. And along the way, we certainly get some editorial moments and some other kinds of even autobiographical reflections from Robert. You don't have to agree with everything Robert says. He's a strong advocate for choice and charter schools, and some who know me kind of know where I stand on these matters. What I appreciate mostly about Robert, though, is... He takes this affordance and limitation approach to his work. It's not just about this is good, this is bad. He acknowledges the weaknesses and the limitations of a system, even as he advocates for it. And to me, that's authentic. That's real. And that's how real life is. That's how each of our actual lives are. That's how education is. That's how it's always been. So it's a matter of understanding the affordances and limitations. And certainly we want to take a stance on these matters, but it's nice to get that deep deep dive investigation and that kind of candor and honesty and vulnerability and that willingness to look at something from multiple perspectives. And I see that in Robert and his work. I appreciate it very much. I hope you do too as well. Let's get started with the interview. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I love to begin each of my episodes uh giving the audience a chance to get to know the guest a bit and some people may know you from your work some may not but i'd love to just give you a chance to share a little bit of about your story and how you ended up where you are today and feel free to go back as far as you want or if you wanted to start in the recent past that'd be great of course i know from the book that we'll be talking about that you do have a fascinating story though
1: Okay, so you, you don't want to hear about how my parents met in a bowling alley in Yonkers.
0: Sure. <laughs> well, I don't know. That could be interesting too, but maybe we'll we'll go forward a little I, I wasn't bit. There.
1: <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward about 40 years. I, I had a career in the media world. Uh, I did radio news uh, while I was taking a semester off from college that I never quite went back to college after. Uh, ended up working in the magazine business for quite a while at Time and Business Week. And, and about the time I was uh, on the eve of turning 40, Uh, I decided to do a two-year mid-career public service stint, signing up for the New York City Teaching Fellows, uh, which is an alternative certification program in New York City. Uh, I'd been involved in not-for-profit work up in the South Bronx for for several years and and ended up teaching in the South Bronx. it's pretty much a straight line between those two things. Um, I, I think I said this in the book, but I, you know, if I'm being really candid, uh, my my teaching was kind of a mid-career impulse purchase. In other words, I kind of thought I would do my two-year mid-career public service stint and then figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up. And education uh, ended up becoming my second career. I ended up staying in the classroom for five years, never really left. I've taught on and off ever since. Uh, to this day, I, I teach uh, one day a week at Demacros prep charter school in Harlem. Um, But I I became, um, I guess, uh, militant would be the right word about issues pertaining to curriculum um, while I was teaching in the South Bronx. Uh, That became my kind of particular interest in education and education reform. Uh, We can talk about this if you like, but mostly because it it just seemed to be getting not a lot of attention from either traditional uh, educators or the ed reform world. So, in the years since, I guess I've kind of um, carved out a niche for myself being the oddball in the ed reform world who uh, tends to write mostly about classroom practice. And, and that led me directly to write this book.
0: I would love to pause at that. You mentioning how, your sort of advocacy around matters of curriculum. What was it that caught your attention or what was the the problem? Um, some people call it sort of a holy discontent. What was the thing that you saw that was just you weren't weren't willing to let go of?
1: Yeah, that's that. That's I've I've told this story a thousand times. Uh, I, I was teaching at at a school in the South Bronx, which was literally um, then and I think still the lowest performing school in New York City's lowest performing district, District Seven, in the South Bronx. And uh, there's a guy. Uh, some of our listeners may know his name, E.D. Hirsch Jr. Uh, the author of of cultural literacy about 40 years ago and and the founder of the Core Knowledge Foundation. And I've said this for years. His work described what I saw in my classroom every day. Kids who could read, and I'm making air quotes as I say the word read because what I really mean is decode. Uh, They could read the words on the page, but but their their reading comprehension um, was, uh, was, was not where it needed to be. And every time I would mention uh, his work in, you know, professional development or my grad school classes or whatnot, I, I would often hear some variation of, "Oh, oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously." And and I would get my my response to be, "Well, wait a minute. That's that's not what Hirsch's work is about at all. It's about language proficiency. It's about reading comprehension. It's about background knowledge." Uh, it, to make a long story short, the way I was being taught to teach reading comprehension to my struggling fifth graders in the South Bronx, uh, only one out of five of whom were reading on grade level, um, simply did not make sense. And the more I learned about uh, Hirsch's work and and folks like Dan Willingham, the University of Virginia cognitive scientist, uh, the more I realized that uh, my preparation as a teacher uh, had completely, uh, you know, missed the boat in terms of what I thought uh, struggling readers really needed to become proficient readers. So that that has largely driven the the, the course of my 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 uh, uh, post classroom work ever since.
0: So literacy was really the the focus of your your thinking. I mean that that was the portion of curriculum yes. that that you really got focused on immediately from the beginning.
1: Well, yeah, and if I can elaborate just a little bit, in other words, we were we didn't really have a curriculum at all. Um, you know, and again, I don't want to divert the conversation in a direction other than which you intend. But the, the long story short, at the risk of oversimplifying, is. Uh, the, the biggest problem my students faced in the South Bronx was reading comprehension, in terms of a foreseeable long-term disadvantage. Um, but we we tended then, and I think we still do, tend to treat reading comprehension as a suite of skills. You know, find the main idea, question the author, uh, etc. Et that that really. Uh, that do not transfer from one text to another. Hirsch's insight, again, brought over simplification, is, is that it's really about background knowledge and vocabulary, and that in order to understand and comprehend a piece of text, you had to, uh, you know, be able to contextualize. You, you you need the background knowledge and vocabulary that the author assumes you have. Um, in other words, it's not a reading reading comprehension is not a skill like. Throwing a ball or riding a bike that you can practice and master in the abstract. So, uh, his his work and insights have kind of driven uh, my work ever since. And at the risk of, again of oversimplifying, uh, we didn't really have a curriculum at all in in my school. And this is this I came to learn was quite common. Uh, I've told this story as well many times that you know my classroom as a new teacher was sloppy with people who wanted to tell me how to teach. But when I asked, well, what am I supposed to teach in my naivete? You know, the question was dismissed. I was even laughed at, Mister Punditsio. You're the best person to know what every child needs, and I, I found that answer then and still quite unhelpful. Uh, the good news is we're getting a little bit savvier about curriculum, um, and, and and savvier about that teachers are more effective when they've got a good curriculum. But but there's still a long way to go.
0: Reading the reviews of your book, How the Other Half Learns, it certainly, uh, I see a lot of there are a lot of. Affirmations about what you just described. It seems to be that's part of a gap that you're filling with this book. And there's a quote from page 10 where you write What happens inside classrooms remains beneath the notice of education policymakers and pundits. I have long believed that this indifference to curriculum and instruction. Is a significant impediment to progress. Is, is that's sort of a, a core motivation behind writing the book?
1: Oh, w- without question. And, and, and again, let me let me state at the outset. Uh, I hope my education reform credentials are in, in good order. In other words, I'm you know not anti-testing. I'm not anti-accountability. I'm in, strongly in favor of choice and charters. But having said all that, unless we are focused on improving. Classroom practice across all sectors of schools, charters, traditional publics, etc. Uh, I, I just think there's a limit to how much um, how much more progress we're going to make.
0: The other positive in terms of reviews about your work, and this is actually what intrigued me, because I tend I can be pretty eclectic. I don't fit into a, a category in terms of advocacy very easily myself. I see a lot of value across different contexts and groups. And um, and what I appreciated was the incredible candor uh, that came out in this book. It, this is definitely not uh, an advertisement for one particular ideology or, or philosophy or approach to education.
1: I appreciate that. Um, in fact, when the book came out, I wrote a, a piece for the website in 74, an education website. And, and the title of the piece, uh, at least in my initial draft, was, here's my new book. I hope you hate it. And, and what I <laughs> meant by that was, uh, exactly as uh, you just described. In other words, look, I've got a particular point of view, and and I do have opinions about you know good, better, and best, as it were. But the point of that of that that piece and that title was that look, you know, when when every good story in education gets quickly to it's complicated or it's not worth telling. So my hope was that while people, whether you're for or against. Charter schools and ed reform, you, you will find things in this book, I hope, that that will validate your priors, but but the, that if you're an honest reader, I, I hope would also cause you to question some of your priors.
0: My guess is that one of the reasons why it transcends those categories is because the whole book is grounded in really deep experience that you had this one year. And, and we'll get to that. I'll give, give you a chance to sort of describe this to the audience a, a bit. But you were actually in this, this school for a year and describing um, what you saw and experienced and what was happening. And so it, it, it's, it doesn't lend itself toward just advocating for a perspective. It's the real world. People are going to read and see yeah. what actually happened, good, bad, and ugly.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. My article of faith is it doesn't behoove anybody to be um, uh, you know, less than candid, uh, good, bad, and ugly, as it were, about what we're doing, because schools are messy, complicated places. We're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with children. So, you know, the, 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 the bracing narratives, both for and against uh, uh, traditional schools and charter schools have a political purpose, but um, I'm not sure that they're always uh, sound from the, from the point of view of a, of a practitioner.
0: So, take us into this into this project. I'd love before we even get into your findings in the book. I'd like to talk just about your process. So, um, uh, how did you pick the school? How did you pick this approach to sort of immersing yourself in it for a year? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: A lot of politicking, yeah. To be to be brutally honest, you know, if you if you live and work in in education in New York City as I did for for several years. Uh, you can't not hear about Success Academy and even mm-hmm. Moskowitz. They are um, a bit of an 800-pound gorilla in, in 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 Gotham. And they, they have done something quite remarkable over the years, which is there, there's literally no such thing as a bad one. Um, they've grown to about 47, 48 schools now. And based on test scores, uh, there is no such thing as a low-performing Success Academy. So in other words, no other... Charter school network of its size, um, or and even most smaller ones, can can make that claim. So they clearly have figured something out. Uh, back in twenty fourteen, uh, I think was the first year that the Common Core tests uh, hit. When you know we, we were all expecting, uh, and and we this is what we got. Uh, we were expecting test scores to fall out of bed because the standards got higher, the tests got harder. And and that's in fact exactly what happened. Even some you know charter high flyers suddenly looked uh, a lot weaker uh, by the by by these higher standards. But not Success Academy. They actually went up. So at the time I wrote a piece for the New York Daily News an op-ed, and there was a line in there something to the effect of um, "Is Eva Moskowitz the Michael Jordan of testing or the Mark McGuire?" If you're not a sports <laughs> fan, that might go over your head. Speaking <laughs> of background. Uh, but Michael Gordon is this, you know, this, this fantastic, the, maybe the best basketball player who ever lived. Mark McGuire is a notorious uh, steroids cheater in baseball. So in other words, the, 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 the question I was asking rhetorically is, is all that glitters gold at Success Academy? A lot of us were asking that question. And I, I posited in the piece that someone needs to go up to Harlem and figure out uh, exactly how she's doing it. I didn't anticipate it would be me, but within a few years, uh, it, it did end up being me. I, I talked... Eva Moskowitz into allowing me to um, spend a year in one of her schools, and and look, to her credit, to her great credit, she, she took some persuading, but she came around, and why did I end up in that particular school? It was um, I visited quite a few success academies over the course of reporting the book, but the day to day that makes up the narrative of, of the book takes place in Success Academy Bronx One. And that was just kind of a nice little writerly thing. It's literally across the street from where I was a student teacher, and in the very same school district, a few blocks away from where I taught fifth grade in the public school system for several years.
0: Yeah, and and what about your process? I mean, uh, what what was a day in a life for that year? What was your what was your day like? <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm laughing because if I if I had a process, I'd be a lot more prolific than I am. I, I really need to get me one of those um no i you know i, I would i would go into to, to 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 bronx one um you know not every day but many days at least you know once or twice a week for for the entire school year and it was just fly in the wall access uh it was you know it it, it, it it was it's hard because you're trying to create a narrative or, or or hoping that one presents itself to you uh in in real time what i what i found myself doing um is just never narr- Narrowing, uh with each subsequent visit where i would go in other words i and this shows up in the book i tended to gravitate towards the same three or four classrooms because on the one hand uh, i want to be kind of responsible on the other hand uh, i want to tell a story right in other words people are interested in other people so uh it made more sense to start to go deep on uh on carolyn Siskowski's christmas uh, uh kindergarten class on um, uh, one particular second grade class and a pair of fourth grade classes, the principal is a character, so to speak. The the, the assistant principals are characters. So as time went on, I, I I tended to start to narrow my focus a little bit, just to see classes where I can see you know the the good, bad, and ugly. Uh, you know, uh, classes that were good representations of. The, the, the curriculum and pedagogy of the school, the school culture, et cetera. It, it, just, it just made sense to kind of over time focus on fewer classrooms as opposed to trying to capture the entire school.
0: And you did spend some time outside of the classrooms as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I visited, um, I mean, not all of this shows up in the book, but I made a number of school visits with Eva Moskowitz. I think one of them is in the book. Spent a lot of time with parents who I got to know as well, visited with them in you know, their homes and churches and, and, and whatnot. You know, I, I'm trying to... Uh, kind of uh, do two things at once, which is to do some, you know, critical analysis of of what exactly they're doing uh, at Success Academy while also telling a a character-driven story.
0: Right. So you did something quite different from what I've done over the years a lot, where uh, one of my first projects was I was curious about these highly innovative schools that people identified as successful, not necessarily just on the measure of tests. I was looking at some other things as well. And so I visited Mm -hmm. over 100 schools, a lot of the schools without desks, rows and bells, really different alternative models. And um, yep. And one of the things that came from it, I was looking for the traits of the leaders as one part of the study, and I found that one of the things that these schools all had in common, the ones that really seemed to, if you were a designer, they popped, <laughs> some people might say, um, but what uh, was that they had a set of unavoidable, undeniable school-shaping concepts, something yeah. that people held in common. And that certainly shows up in the book, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the unavoidable, undeniable school shaping concepts that became that, that sort of showed themselves to you as you're in this school.
1: Well, see that that's kind of interesting, Bernard, because that was a bit of, a, of an epiphany for me. Um, what I mean by that is I expected to write a book about curriculum and instruction because that's generally what I write about, and and I assumed you know, my view of, of, of high performing schools, not that I a you know, I'm not, I'm not a test junkie as it were, or a testing hawk. Um, but you know, the, the, the general logic is, uh, you show me a school with, with good test scores, I'll show you a good school. Right. Uh, and, and the opposite, um, there might be, uh, you know, uh, bad schools with good test scores, but there's no such thing as a good school with bad test scores. At any rate, I, I ended up writing a book that, uh, at the end is more about school culture than, than about, uh, Curriculum and instruction Um, and I became kind of fascinated by that because it's it's not an area that I'm expert at Uh, I learned a lot about it. In fact at one point I was describing to uh, Pat wolf who's a friend and a professor at the University of Arkansas The theories that I was developing about school culture and how that really I thought drove uh, the results that Success Academy was achieving and he said, um, almost casually, well, well, you know George Akerlof's work, of course. And I'm like, who? Um, he's, he, I should know who he is. He's, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist, and his, his wife is Janet Yellen, the former Fed chairman. So it's not as if he's an obscure figure. And, and then I had this kind of um, dark moment when, once I got to, to read more of Akerlof's uh, work about uh, uh, behavioral economics that, oh, oh, Lord, somebody's already written my book. Um, so that was, that was a bit of a, an an (laughs) epiphany to, to consider the fact that, look, you know, school culture really matters. And again, I'm not an economist, so I I hope I'm not doing violence to Akerlof's work, but his, his main insight is that, look, kids want to fit in. Um, so if you control the culture, that kind of sets, uh, kids' academic identity and, and their concomitant level of effort. Uh, so control the culture, control the, the, the game as it were.
0: And, and so with that in mind, when you go into a school like this, um, my guess is that there are certain—well, not my guess. <laughs> I have some insight from the book. But uh, you, you go in and there are certain ideals or approaches or perspectives that— are pretty much universal, that everyone's sort of agreeing to. We're all on board. We're all going in the same direction. What are some of those things that you noticed yeah. in this well, school?
1: I, I think the, the real big one is the level of parental engagement. And and this is a bit controversial, right? The, if there's news out of the book, it's news that's been hiding in plain sight. Uh, their admissions process at, uh, at, at Success Academy, uh, I'll unpack for you a little bit. And, and I, I shouldn't assume, I always make this mistake, that people understand what a charter school is. So it's worth mentioning. A charter school is a publicly funded but privately run school. So it is a public school. It's tuition-free. Uh, when a school is oversubscribed as uh, Success Academy is, they have to admit by lottery, so that gives the, the impression of a completely randomized, um, uh, parent body, as it were. That's a little misleading here because what success does is, is yes, they have a lottery, uh, just uh, to, to, to seat uh, the, the, the the fill the empty seats but then they ask parents to jump over any number of, of what i would describe as as non-trivial hurdle you you, you come to a welcome meeting uh, which is really a, an exercise in, in culture and uh, in, in ex- culture setting and expectation management then you have to do a lot of paperwork confirm your interest by email come to a uniform fitting uh, meet your teachers uh, for dress rehearsal etc the undeniable fact is is that uh, this seems to winnow the the number of applicants. And and what you end up with at the end is not really a one-in-six chance of being seated, but a one-in-two chance. And and the families that end up matriculating, um, making it through this process, tend to be of a certain type. One, they're they're, uh, now very invested uh, in in the school culture and expectations, et cetera. I don't want to overstate it, not necessarily everybody, but a critical mass of families are now actively and enthusiastically buying what Eva Moskowitz and Success Academy is selling. Uh, that creates the conditions, uh, the, 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 the level of parental buy in that I think helps drive these results. I mean, I want to be clear because some critics of success have looked at this book and this reporting and, and, and concluded that oh, this, this, is, this means that, the, that the, the secret sauce is parental self-selection. Um, I'm not making that argument at all. The book, I think, is quite clear that that's the starting line, not the finish line. But it, it, I think it's undeniable that you can get more done uh, with a parent body that is, that, that is actively engaged. And, and also, Success Academy makes prodigious demands on those parents. You're going to read every night with your kid and you're going to put it on a reading log. Your child is going to read uh, independently and, and and log it. Uh, you're, you're responsible for checking homework. You're responsible for quizzing math facts and sight words, et cetera. So at the risk of oversimplifying, what happens here is, is that it's just a way of getting every adult in a child's life, teachers, parents, administrators, grandparents, et cetera, all singing from the same hymnal and that produces fantastic results for kids.
0: That last part, really captured my attention. So all singing from the same hymnal. Can you just sort of tease that out a little bit more? Um, what are some of those uh, approaches or perspectives that that they're all um, using in unison?
1: Well, I, I think it's what, what may be more instructive, if I, if I can, Bernard, is, sure. is comparing it to the absence of those things. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, and forgive me if I get on my soapbox here a little bit, but having been <laughs> um, an inner-city teacher... I think we are guilty of one of two sins in general, Uh, those of us in in the ed reform world or even, frankly, in the traditional school world. We either assume that um, we, we, we view inner city communities through a lens of dysfunction and we assume that we can't make demands on parents. Because look, you know they have hard lives. There's so much dysfunction. Um, you know, it, it, it's a deficit view of, of parents in places like the South Bronx. So we ask very little of them, and I, I think that's that's wrong. The other, the opposite is, if you take the typical success academy family, they tend to be, and this is not data. This is just kind of observational. But you see a, a, an extraordinarily large number of families parents who are married, engaged, religious, uh, meaning engaged with education, religious or spiritual, committed to to school, etc. These are the type of parents that some of us in education will look at, and I heard this over and over in my reporting for the book, but we're not worried about those parents, they'll be fine, or those kids will be fine. In other words, they've they've got everything they need, and I, I find that. Um, You know, no less dismissive and condescending. So in in short, you know, one of the things that Eva Moskowitz deserves all the credit in the world for is not having uh, a negative uh, view of of, of parents, uh, treating them as less than. She has uh, as high expectations for parents as, as she has for students, and enlists them to be active participants in the in the child's education. I, I enumerated some of them earlier. You know, uh, reading a half an hour every night, keeping reading logs. Um, you know, if 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 there's if there's issues with the child's uh, att- attendance or on time performance, well then they really kind of pressure the parents. I mean, I, I, I quote somebody in the book. She she meant it offhandedly but earnestly. She said, "We harass parents, and and, and they mean it." Um, you know, it, it's a it's a warmer relationship than that in general. But they 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 are not shy about um, reinforcing high expectations of parents. Uh,
0: that's that that's interesting. So the another thing that that certainly comes about in the book is that there's a bit of myth busting that. As, as you noted, you did not avoid the controversy. You just you, you went right to the heart of it. I mean, uh, with Success Academy, obviously one that, that's highly praised and highly critiqued in terms of, of charter mm-hmm. schools. Um, and, and, and at least one review wrote that, um, uh, that your book is really effective at dispelling some myths, myths about this school, maybe myths about charter schools in general. Any come to mind for you?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think, um, and again, I'm going to indulge in a broad oversimplification here. A, a lot of folks, whether you are for or against charter schools, we, we, we tend to uh, adhere to one or two, one of, a couple of basic narratives. In the one you hear in New York City a lot, because unlike a lot of other places, charter schools and traditional districts, district schools tend to be co-located in single school buildings. So you hear this story all the time about, oh, the only difference is the door that the kid walks in in the morning. They walk in the charter school door, they get a good outcome. They walk in the district school door, they get a bad outcome. And then traditional school uh, folks will say, hey, look, you really can't compare what we do uh, to what charter schools do. Um, you know, they're, they're cleaning the best kids, uh, et cetera. These are these are kind of unsatisfying narratives, um, and and neither one really obtains um, at the at at the end of the day. Uh, but look, I think it's also important to be clear-eyed. Uh, you know, and and I make my 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 priors clear in the book. I, I am a charter school um, uh, guy. I'm a I'm a choice advocate, but that doesn't mean that I'm willing to to turn a blind eye to the to the downstream effects. So I, I think there, you know, when when folks in like my old school. Um, High poverty school in the South Bronx say that it it makes their job harder when a success academy uh, attracts away uh, the most engaged and ambitious parents. I, I I don't think that's wrong. I think that's so. I do think the comparison is unfair. But but then you also have to follow that argument where it leads. Just because it may make your job harder does not mean we have the right to tell low income families of color. I'm sorry, you must stay here in the traditional school. Uh, because it makes it, it makes our job harder. In other words, it, it is just no one says this to me No one says this to you about our children if you are um, White or affluent for example in this in this country you have something approaching perfect school choice right now either through the ability to uh, Pay private school tuition or your ability to pick up and move where your real estate taxes are, are a form of, of, uh, of tuition so to speak uh, it, it just it strikes me as, as unethical um, to to say that uh, you can have and this is, gets to why the wider book is titled How the Other Half Learns. I don't mean it literally half, but it, but it's just it's it, it's unsustainable to allow one class of Americans to have something like the unfettered and unremarkable pursuit of educational excellence and the other half. Uh, told, um, I'm sorry, We, you get equity. It, that, that just does not strike me as, as fair. That doesn't mean that there are not downstream effects when somebody like Eva Moskowitz comes along and figures out a way to, to give low-income families of color what you and I functionally have for our children. Uh, it just means we have to have a more nuanced understanding of the trade-offs.
0: Yeah, I, I trade offs resonates. I c- kind of cut my teeth in the academic world on studying a field called media ecology originally. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's always looking at affordances and limitations of every new kind of media, every technology. And in some ways you can call a school system or structure a technology. There are always mm-hmm. affordances, always, um, th- there are always limitations. There will always be shifts of winners and losers in every system. And and that's part of what I appreciated about the book. I appreciate there's some look, candor.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's very easy and facile to say, Well, look, we should, you know, we we should just make sure that every child gets this this level. Well, that's very, very easy to say and it's very, very difficult to do. And it's very, very easy to say to somebody. Uh, when, when it's when it's when you it's not your child who is, you know, at, at being told um, You know uh, that this school is, is is getting better be patient uh, So we have to be very very mindful um, that our uh, it, from a policy perspective um, That we're not asking parents to sacrifice uh, the, the, their, their children's futures um, You know uh, While while we get around to fixing things uh, that, again, I couldn't be clear about this uh, it, it, That is not to say that we can, should be in the business of picking winners and losers. It's funny, there, there, there's a, you know, I'm, I'm used to writing controversial things, and, and something I left in the book that I thought I was gonna get questioned about, nobody's brought it up. Uh, there's, there, there's a quote in the book from Charles Murray, and I, I hope I don't need to explain who he is and why he's controversial, but nobody said it better, and I didn't wanna steal his idea. Uh, he said in, in his book, Losing Ground, look, it's, it's not the job of public policy. Um, to uh, identify the worthy, it's the job of public policy to allow the worthy to identify themselves. Uh, I, I don't care for the word "worthy" in that formulation, but but I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, it, it just won't do um, to have one uh, segment of, of society again that 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 does have the ability to to um, you know get themselves into good schools. Not easy, but it's not impossible. And another another segment of society that that just does not have that
0: access. You know, we are almost at the end of our time here, and this is like our last bite of dessert. And now I'm going to bring up some like big, major meaning of life question. We won't be able to get you. I'm
1: just getting but, started. Yet,
0: I know, I know. So, but I I can't leave this conversation without asking about another angle, kind of going a little different hmm. direction, which was uh, you have a bit of a of a journey around at least it seems that way in the book around your own sort of perspectives on standardized testing and their affordances and their limitations and how they fit and i'm wondering if you can speak to that a little
1: oh bit. I, i'm not sure if that's a journey i mean that's that's honestly not new for me i mean okay. it's, uh,
0: <laughs> it's an ongoing conflict like an internal <laughs>
1: No, it really is it's an unresolved and maybe unresolvable conflict mm-hmm. um, you know, again, uh, because I'm an, an unapologetic disciple of E.D. Hirsch Jr. and his vision of cultural literacy and core knowledge, um, there's no doubt in my mind that what uh, kids need, particularly low-income kids um, who may not have, you know, college-educated parents and 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 enrichment opportunities, what those children most need is a rich school curriculum. Um, they need all the history and science and art and music uh, and whatnot they can get because those things help build language proficiency. And and one of the, the, the ill effects of the ed reform era is that there has been a tendency to narrow the curriculum to reading and math and not much else in the well-intended but, but, but wrong-headed uh, idea that we're just going to spend more time practicing reading. Uh, Again, we could could have several podcasts just talking about just just that misconception. But if you think about what standardized tests do, uh, they incentivize that kind of curriculum narrowing because that's how we evaluate schools and teachers as a general rule is based on reading and math tests. So there's a perverse incentive there. What we know or what we should know works, which is a rich curriculum. Uh, we don't incentivize through our testing structures. That said, you knew there was a butt coming. <laughs> Nobody sentimentalized the time before tests. Uh, you know, it, it's not as if um, we had this golden era of of, of public education, and, the, and then the testing came along and broke it. Um, you know, so, so we, 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 we haven't quite gotten the relationship yet correct between you know, the inevitable public accountability, and I want to be clear on that. I'm not one of these people who says, you know, just, just uh, uh, cancel the test and trust the teachers. Uh, in a publicly financed system, you're going to have accountability. It's a non-negotiable. It just is. Um, but I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting the relationship between uh, testing and and schooling correct. Right now, there's, there's a few too many negative or perverse incentives in there.
0: Right. I'm actually bringing on a variety of guests to talk about this matter of what I call the the um, the testing tail that w- that wags the educational dog. Yeah, that, that's um, exactly right. And uh, Angela Duckworth was actually a guest where we were talking about you know what is there a means of measuring things like grit or some of these other traits that that may be really relevant for people's thriving in their uh, post school mm-hmm. life. Um, uh, so I'm really intrigued in sort of expanding that conversation. And I did see that. I mean, I I, I appreciate the fact that you approached this. Um, i don't know tell me if this is accurate or not it's it's a little bit less of a right and wrong and more of an affordance and limitations perspective it doesn't mean that you don't no, have to take I think on that's right. yeah
1: i think that's right i mean look you, you could make the case and i don't i don't want to um oversimplify yet again but what you can argue that the entire impetus of the ed reform era is to find out what works and scale it up And that's not a bad impulse because, you know, again, uh, too many uh, American children go to schools that that are not uh, working for them and and they deserve better. Um, But the idea that there's a right way to do this uh, against which all exceptions must justify themselves is is, is not an idea that I think is a very good one. Um, So here you have, to, to bring it full circle, in the case of Success Academy, I think I asked this question in the book, you know, since you have this this school or this collection of schools that seems to be just killing it in terms of the the, the measures that we incentivize in, in education, i.e. test scores. Do, does this prove that that concept works or does the relative rarity of this level of achievement and consistency make it something of, of what I call the reverse perfect storm? In my mind, and I guess we can end here, at the, at the end of the book, I asked Eva Moskowitz, "Look, what you know? How much of this formula do you think could transfer to K twelve education at large?" Her answer, you know, not unsurprisingly, was all of it. And my answer in this book is is less than all of it, Um, (laughs) for for two reasons. Um, Well, one, I think this thing would be difficult. Two, it wouldn't be appropriate. In other words, you know. I, I, I like quite a lot of what I saw at Success Academy. Um, I, just just because I'm presenting it warts and all does not mean I don't see enormous value in it. I certainly do, but it simply would not be appropriate um, to impose this uh, this brand of schooling on the unwilling. Uh, you know, as effective as it might be, uh, not every parent is is going to want uh, the, the 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 kind of um, just so environment of Success Academy. The uniforms, the the the, the 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 intensity etc uh those who choose it i think are served quite well by it but that is again not the same thing is is this is the right way to do school and therefore everybody must do it this way
0: robert i am so grateful that you joined me on the show this book is a real gift it is a refreshing uh addition to the conversation in education where you don't just sort of step into this one uh positional pocket and and just run with it the whole time you know it's it's less of a sort of a political debate context and it really is inviting the reader into a story and and even if they don't agree with your uh editorial uh pieces uh they're going to get something rich out of it so thank you for that
1: i appreciate that and thank you for your time
0: thanks for listening to this episode of edu futures where we agree with bucky fuller when he wrote You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edufutures.